engineering at Edinburgh University. He then uh, left an engineering career to go uh, study theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and then went on to get a PhD in Old Testament, focusing on the book of Ezekiel at Cambridge University. And he has uh, taught at several Reformed seminaries, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, California, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's taught at a, a Christian university, Grove City Christian College, and it's Westminster Philly where he's teaching now. Um, more importantly, he is a pastor who has a great heart for helping people see Christ in the Bible, to see the whole Bible as pointed to Jesus, especially the parts that some of us have a harder time with, like, say, Numbers or the book of Ezekiel. In all of his teaching for his students, he always pushes them to ask, how does the text connect to Jesus and show us how Christ's death, Christ's life, death, and resurrection impacts our whole lives? Uh, and he hasn't uh, only taught that in the classroom, but he's also uh, been involved in multiple church plants all the way from Oxford, England to California to uh, Grove City and Philadelphia. Uh, finally, and perhaps most importantly from my perspective, he's a father. Uh, together with his wife, Barbie, has six children, Wayne, me, Jamie, Sam, Hannah, Rob, and Rosie, as well as a whole herd of King Charles Cavalier Spaniels. So, uh, Dad, would you come and bring the word to us this evening? Thank you, Jamie. What do I say to follow that? Let's turn in God's words, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter uh, 52 is where we'll pick it up, because that's where the passage begins. Uh, we often think about it as Isaiah 53, but the passage really begins at verse 13 of Isaiah 52, and that's where we'll begin our reading of God's Word today. Let's give careful attention to this reading of God's holy, inspired Word. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations." Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned away to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep 
silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgments. And who considered his fates? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was signed a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hands the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish he will see lights and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we are your people. We pray that by your Spirit you would open up our hearts, help us to understand your Word, help us to see how it convicts us of our sins and how it points us afresh to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, I attended a high school in England that was founded in the year 1600 by an Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift. In 1600, it was only little more than 40 years since one of his predecessors, Thomas Cranmer, had been executed at the stake for his Protestant beliefs by the then Queen Mary. So it's perhaps no surprise that John Whitgift chose as the motto for his new school, Vincit qui patitur, he who suffers conquers. See, his generation knew of a kind of victory that can only be won through suffering kind of victory that undergirded the Protestant Reformation on every side. I want to suggest to you this evening that that's very different from the models of victory that we are used to in our contemporary culture. For us, generally, victory means standing tall and strong, fighting off all comers with one hand tied behind our backs. Growing up, our heroes were classic comic book characters, Superman, Captain America, who could hold off entire tank divisions simply with a steely gaze, and who emerged from every encounter without even a scratch on his hand or a mark on his superhero outfits. Or perhaps growing up, your model was Barbie, who managed to combine working by day as a vet with moonlighting as a model, while still having the energy at the weekend to drive her pink Jeep to Malibu to go surfing with Ken. And to do it all with perfect hair and in high heels. As a result, we tend to identify victory in similar terms in our own lives. We feel we are victorious people if our careers are successful, if our homes are large, if our families are beautiful and our children are well-behaved. Or in spiritual terms, we are victorious if our churches are growing and thriving, if we are personally somewhere close to being free from all known sin, and our perfectly catechized children know the answer to every Bible trivia question, as, of course, Jamie did. (laughs) 
But the reality that we inhabit, however, is so often something different. Perhaps your career is in a slump. Your marriage is a mass of tensions waiting to explode. And the last time you left your children home alone, they found a bottle of alcohol and got drunk. Perhaps you just discovered that your wife has terminal cancer. And the prognosis is grim. Life, you see, is not like the comic books that we grew up with. It is a hard grind, a wrestling match with sin and brokenness, your own and that of others around you, in which bruising losses accumulate and victories often seem few and far between. What does victory really look like in a world like this? What does it mean to live a victorious Christian life in a very fallen universe? Well, that's what this passage in Isaiah is meant to show us. Perhaps we're so familiar with the most quotable verses of Isaiah 53 that we forget that this prophecy had a context into which it was originally spoken. God's people to whom it was written were broken by their own sin and its consequences. They found themselves in exile in Babylon. They felt cut off and abandoned by God because of their sins. They felt helpless and hopeless, unable to do anything to redeem the mess that their lives had become. But that was not the end of their story. Into the pain and brokenness of their lives, God sent this prophet Isaiah with a message of good news, comfort, comfort my people. Tell them their God reigns. Tell them I myself am coming to bring light into their darkness and hope into their despair. Tell them their hard service is over, their iniquity is paid for, and there is a new future ahead of them. Tell them about the new heavens and the new earth, that I, the Lord, I'm going to bring into existence. Tell them that I myself as a divine warrior will put on my armor and free them from their bondage. How would this astounding victory be won? How could God take weak and sinful people who had failed over and over again and change them into oaks of righteousness? How could rebellious, hard-hearted Israel be transformed into the Lord's faithful servants? These are the questions that this passage is addressing. And it depicts a triumphant victory that comes to us through crushing pain and suffering. An amazing deliverance that comes through an apparent defeat. A glorious hope that comes through utter helplessness. How does the Lord provide beautiful robes of righteousness for his defiled bride? How does the strong arm of the Lord win an astonishing victory? The answer this chapter gives us is that he does it by afflicting his obedient servants in our place. To paraphrase the old line from Star Trek, this is victory, Jim, but not as we know it. And what's more, this victory, but not as we know it, that is foreseen becomes a pattern for our redemption as Christians and also for the shape of our renewed Christian lives. Vinci Ki Patitur becomes our motto as well. 
Through Christ we have victory. But it is a victory that comes to us and lives in us through suffering. The passage has a distinct structure that helps us to grasp this message. There are five stanzas of three verses each, 13 to 15 and 52, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. These five stanzas are arranged in chiastic order around the center, the third stanza. Or to put it another way, stanzas 1 and 5 are parallel, both focusing on the victory of the servant. Stanzas 2 and 4 are also parallel, focusing on the reality of the servant's suffering. And then that central stanza, stanza 3, shows us the reason for his suffering. The passage begins with a cry, Behold my servants! The figure who appears in this description is the Lord's chosen servant, the one who faithfully does the Lord's will and achieves his purposes. This servant, we're told, will act wisely, that is, in a way that will succeed, that will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up, attributes that elsewhere are only applied to the Lord, for example, in Isaiah 6. His victory will be the Lord's ultimate triumph, the great demonstration of his sovereign kingship. And it's important to notice that we start with the end of the story. We start with a triumphant outcome of the servant's suffering. Because if he hadn't told you that at the outset, you might easily get confused by what happens next. The poem also ends on that same note of victory. In verses 11 and 12, when the servant finally sees the results of his suffering, he is satisfied. See, Isaiah wants to make it clear to us from beginning to end that this song is not a tragic dirge over unfortunate defeat. It is a glorious exaltation in victory. But having established that this is indeed a triumphant victory song, we then immediately cut starkly from the exaltation of victory to the agony of what looks so much like defeat. And a defeat so awful that it left people astonished with what they saw because the servant's disfigurement was so great. The servant was so broken, so bruised by his sufferings that he barely appeared to be human anymore, made almost unrecognizable through his wounds. And yet somehow, this grotesque disfigurement would be the means through which the servant would carry out his priestly work of sprinkling the nations, purifying them through his own sufferings. The nations who previously had neither seen nor heard the message of the prophet would now hear and see and as a result would believe and be saved. The nations. But what about God's own people? What about us? Would they come flocking to the servants and believe? Because the problem early in Isaiah is not the nations, it is Israel's own hard-heartedness. Would those to whom God's power had been revealed finally respond with faith? Sadly, the answer still seems to be no. Those who had not heard the message believe, 
but those who are closest to the prophet remain unbelieving. Many nations understand and respond, but we, the prophet says, did not esteem him. Why not? Why was the no response from God's own people to this extraordinary display of the Lord's power? Well, the answer is that this is not the kind of salvation that they had expected. The servant comes not in power and majesty, but in weakness. Not like a green and fruitful tree of the kind depicted in Psalm 1, but as a gnarly, dried-up root sprouting out of dry and cracked soil. Of course, the root out of dry ground is nonetheless a messianic figure. In Isaiah 11:1, the Lord promised to bring a branch from Jesse's roots. Same Hebrew word. But this new root doesn't look like any of Jesse's original sons. He has no extraordinary beauty or attractiveness like Eliab, Jesse's oldest, nor even David himself, who we're told is ruddy and handsome. No, this servant takes into himself all of the negative aspects of life here on earth. He is despised and rejected by man. A man thoroughly acquainted with sorrows. Someone who knows what it is to experience choli, a Hebrew word that traditionally is translated grief, but more precisely means sickness. How unlike us. We normally flee from pain and suffering for ourselves and for others because it reminds us of our own vulnerability and our weakness. But unlike us, the servant moves towards suffering, towards pain, towards weakness, and he embraces it as his defining characteristic. He is the man of sorrows, the man whose entire life experience is characterized with sorrow. Why should there be such sorrow, such suffering for an obedient servant? I mean, you could understand why an unfaithful servant might well experience chastisement and severe discipline from his master. In Isaiah 1, rebellious Israel is described as being struck down, sick, covered with wounds as a result of the Lord's judgment. The same words that recur here in Isaiah 53. But surely the way of the obedient servants ought to be smooth and pleasant besides still waters and in green pastures. Surely the obedient servant should flourish like a green tree, not have to struggle for his very survival like a root out of dry ground. What on earth is going on here? Well, the central section of the song unfolds the central mystery of the passage and indeed of the whole of the Scriptures. It turns out that it's our sorrows that the obedient servant is suffering. It is our sickness that he was enduring. It was our suffering that he took up. His life-disfiguring pain and agony was the bitter fruit of my sin and your sin, which the servant bears for us in our place. We were the ones who went astray like sheep, all of us bringing ourselves into the valley of death's shadow, which ought to have been our final tragic resting place. The wages of our sin deserves death. And yet the Lord 
laid the punishment for our iniquity on him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserve was laid upon him, upon this servant. The prophet continues to unpack that idea in the fourth stanza. We all went astray like sheep, but he was the one who paid the sheep-like penalty, being slaughtered like a defenseless, submissive animal chosen to become the atoning sacrifice. The servant was deprived of justice and descendants, and in the ultimate ignominy was buried with the rich and the wicked, sharing the fate of those who earlier in the book are condemned for their oppression of God's people. And yet his fate was without any foundation within himself. Unlike those rich, wicked oppressors, the servant did not open his mouth in deceit or in order to pursue violence any more than he had earlier opened it in his own self-defense. His suffering, his death, utterly undeserved. And what would be the outcome of this undeserved suffering. Well, there's a play on words in verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush the servant because only by doing so could the will of the Lord prosper in his hands. But this will of the Lord is not some cold and abstract decree. The word used for will elsewhere means to be pleased, to delight. The Lord actually delighted to crush his faithful servants, because he knew the glorious outcome that would result as the broken relationship of humanity with God would be gloriously restored. It is not as if the servant has to wrestle sinners to safety out of the hands of an angry God. On the contrary, the achievement of their salvation has been the Father's delight and purpose from the beginning. The servant, too, understood what all of his suffering was for. After his anguish, he was promised that he would see the light of God's salvation and he would be satisfied. Through his knowledge, through his own personal experience of sickness and suffering and sorrow, he would make the many righteous and thereby acceptable to a holy God's. Through his sufferings, the Lord would give his servant the inheritance that he's earned. And it was for this joy that was set before him that he endured all of these things. So how should we respond to this picture of victory that comes through such unrelenting suffering? Well, to begin with, it addresses us as people who are in need of salvation ourselves. How could you possibly think that your best effort to please God could possibly win you salvation if nothing less than God himself taking flesh and sharing so deeply in our sufferings was needed to save God's people? Our salvation is by grace alone, not because of anything in us, as Martin Luther so radically rediscovered. If all that was needed for your salvation was for you to turn over a new leaf and try harder to be good, then we would have to say that the servant's suffering was a monumental waste of a life. 
On the contrary, the passage shows us our utter lostness. We are all sheep who deliberately wandered off. We are all sinners who deliberately broke God's holy law. We are all rebels who transgressed His rule in our lives. And the wages for these things is death, as Paul reminded the Romans. And that reality was not in the least news for Isaiah's hearers because they were experiencing the death of exile in Babylon for the nation's sins. But of course, it is news to many people around you who think, well, of course God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. They're aware, perhaps, well, I might need to get my act together. I might need to work on upping my religious achievement score to win God's favor. But how hard can that be? Impossibly hard, says God. His standard for your life is perfection. And none of us could ever hope to measure up to that standard. If giving it your best shot and trying hard is all you have, you are utterly without hope before the God of the Bible. Nor are we much better after we're saved. We continue to wander off on our own way and rebel against God's perfect law daily. But God does not leave us to ourselves. The good shepherd came looking for lost sheep. The suffering servant took into himself all of the suffering that our sin deserved. The servant entered the dark and broken reality that we have inherited from our first parents alongside us. And he has tasted all of its bitter brokenness for us. Think about it. He came and experienced headaches, and colds, and flu, and diarrhea, broken relationships, mourning at the graveside of a loved one. He knows what these things are, not as merely abstract intellectual concepts, but through his own bitter personal experience. But even more profoundly, on the cross, the servant took into himself the full cost of our sin. He was truly pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities in ways that we will never fully know. He became sin for us. The agonies of the hell that we deserve were embraced in fullness by the servants so that we, the guilty ones, would never have to taste that cup. But who is this mysterious servant? In the book of Acts, our reading earlier, the Ethiopian eunuch asked that question as he read this passage from Isaiah on his way back home from Jerusalem. He asked Philip, of whom is the prophet speaking, of himself or someone else? And beginning with this passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus and the hope that is to be found through faith in him. That Jesus alone has followed this path of suffering that is necessary to free us from our deserved punishments. That as a result, the promise of the nations who would be sprinkled and cleansed through the work of the servant began to be fulfilled as that Ethiopian eunuch trusted his life to Christ and was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. And through that baptism, he was added to God's kingdom and identified with the one who had died and been raised for him. And he went home to his faraway land rejoicing. 
then the uniqueness of the suffering servant also shows us the uniqueness of the Christian message. No other religion has the same God to declare. The God who proclaims that He Himself has suffered in our place to atone for our sins. Lots of religions speak about moral reformation and trying hard to win the favor of the gods. But only Christianity proclaims peace with God through the death of His own Son. Christ alone is our hope. And that same gospel of the suffering and risen Son, Jesus Christ, is the good news that we have been commissioned to bring to all nations. How will they be saved unless they hear this unique gospel? How will they hear unless someone is sent by God to bring this glorious good news? And what a beautiful calling it is to bear such incredible, such joyful tidings. But I think this passage also says something to us about the nature of that task of bringing the good news to the nations. Servants are not greater than their master. If Jesus' pathway through this world involved embracing suffering and pain and seeking out and identifying with the lost and the broken, so also will ours. His progress through life was not a stately glide from glory to glory, but rather a messy daily taking up of His cross and suffering in our place so that through his death and resurrection, he could enter glory with many redeemed brothers and sisters. And if that's true, our calling, as those who are entrusted with this gospel, is not a calling to be super apostles, constantly wowing people with our personal strength and glorious accomplishments. We too are called to take up our own cross and follow after Jesus along that same road of weakness, brokenness, inability, through which God does His remarkable work. We are all chipped and cracked clay pots. Even though by God's grace we contain the treasure of enormous value in the gospel, we are all weak and insufficient witnesses. Even though by God's grace our words contain power to transform hearts and lives of men and women as the Spirit chooses to use them. Indeed, God's plan for us is that we should walk through this world in great weakness, moral weakness, physical weakness, spiritual weakness, so we might never forget our desperate need for the one who walked this path perfectly in our place. His primary goal is not your perfect obedience and success here and now, because that might enable you to claim some glory for yourself. God's goal is Christ's glory, which becomes all the more visible through our great weakness and even our ongoing struggles with indwelling sin. Now, it's true that our sufferings are not redemptive in the way that Christ's were. We are not pierced for others' transgressions. We cannot bear their iniquities. But the task of bringing to others the good news of Jesus' sacrificial sufferings will necessarily involve us in lives that are patterned after His. Our sufferings are redeemed by God and made opportunities for Him to show His care and His love for us and the sufficiency of His grace in the midst of our weakness. 
Let me suggest that that reality changes our thinking about missions as well, a subject close to the hearts of the early reformers. We need to recover the call to sacrificial service. Today, there are many people who tell you you can serve God without cost. It's regarded as strange that you might actually need to suffer and sacrifice something to follow the Lord, whether that's going as a missionary yourself or supporting others on the mission field. In sharp contrast, the pioneer missionaries who went to West Africa in the 19th century quite literally packed their goods in coffins because their life expectancy was that short, a few months at most. They were on a one-way trip, literally giving up everything in this world to die in response to God's call. But I would also say that the message of Christ's victory through suffering also challenges all of us to rethink our definitions of success and failure in life as a whole. As we said at the beginning, we often tend to measure our lives in terms of our victories and accomplishments. We've succeeded if we can point to career achievements and a model family and a nice house and all of the stuff that goes with that. But what if we are called to live lives patterned after a suffering servant? In that case, maybe success for some people will not look like a green flourishing tree, but like a root that has been planted in dry soil. A root that glorifies God, not by the size of the harvest it bears, but simply that against all odds, the gospel enables it to survive in what would be otherwise utterly barren soil. Was it worthwhile for those pioneer missionaries to give up everything they had to go somewhere where they would die within a few months of tropical fever? Was it worthwhile for them while they buried their children and their wives and had nothing glorious to report in their letters back home? You see, if the goal of missions in the world is to see the world converted and plant the maximum number of the largest churches possible, their lives were wasted and should have been spent elsewhere. But if the goal of missions is to bring glory to God by being conformed to the likeness of Christ, the suffering servant, then few people have ever lived more successfully. They laid down their very lives to the glory of God, even if no one today remembers their names. They conquered through suffering in lives patterned after that of their Savior. And it was at the end of his suffering that the servant saw the results of his labors and was satisfied. Think about that, because it is a remarkable statement. The Lord of glory, who left the comfort and adulation of heaven and came to earth, where he experienced pain and suffering and rejection and ridicule and beating and physical abuse before being nailed to a cross where he eked out his last breaths in intense physical and spiritual agony, the like of which the world has never seen. This servant looks out at his redeemed people, at the church, and he is satisfied. In other words, he does not look at the mess that is your life and my life, and at the struggles and churches of your local church and my local church and say, what was I thinking? No. He 
He looks at you and me and our churches and he says, I love the outcome of my sufferings. I love these people. With all their problems, all their failures, all their sins, all their weakness, they are so precious to me that every single thing I suffered was absolutely worthwhile. Today, God calls you to delight in the gospel in the same way that he does. To look upon Jesus, the servant who suffered and lost everything in your place and who conquered through those sufferings. Let your heart thrill afresh as you ponder the cost and reality of your salvation, which has been accomplished, finished in his death and resurrection. And then respond to the Spirit's call to be a witness to that glorious good news of victory through suffering wherever he's placed you, in your home, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, or to the ends of the earth. Pray that he will give you a heart that is willing to serve and to suffer for the sake of the greatness of Jesus. And look forward to the day when you too will behold the fullness of God's harvest. That great multitude of people from every tribe and nation and people group saved by God's grace through the suffering of Jesus Christ by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's the day when all of our sufferings will finally come to an end, when the harvest of God will be complete and we will join the triumphant servants in singing his song of victory. And on that day, both he and we will be fully satisfied by the reward that he has won through his faithful sufferings. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as weak people, people who are afraid of suffering, people who would much rather not suffer. Lord, we thank you that Christ is the man of sorrows and embraced suffering on our part, our behalf, so we wouldn't have to. Lord, we pray that you would give us great joy in that reality, great comfort in the fact that he looks at us and is pleased, does not view his sacrifice as wasted, but is satisfied. Lord, help us likewise to be satisfied in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.